Hey friends, welcome back to the Journal Feed. My name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to get spoon-fed the latest and greatest of emergency medicine. Now, of course, we just want to keep you guys up on the literature, and to do that, we spoon-feed it to you. Now, if you are hearing this right now, then you are not currently a Journal Feed subscriber, and so will not be receiving the full Journal Feed podcast, only getting a portion of the past week's articles. Don't worry, though, they're all good articles. But if you would like to get full access to both the podcast and the blog, then you'll have to become a member. All the details for that are at journalfeed.org. And recall that we never want money to be a barrier to better patient care. So if you're having any trouble affording a subscription, just get in touch. We'll help you out. Now, this is the audio version of the past week summaries, which this week were brought to you by our authors, Jacob Athels, Vivian Lay, Michael Stoker, Doug Wallace, Amanda Matthews, and Clay Smith. Okay, let's jump to the second article. Titled, Relationship of Daily Step Counts to All-Cause Mortality and Cardiovascular Events, out of the journal for the American College of Cardiology. This is something a little bit different than usual. This is not exactly an emergency medicine topic, but we are all still people, and we are even patients to our own doctors. And I, for one, like to know ways to lower my own risk of, you know, mortality, and I can also apply it to my patients. Now, we all know that we need to exercise. That's really easy to say, but the question is always, what's the dose? How much do I need to exercise? The dose makes the medicine after all. So how much do you need to walk to reduce your risk of cardiovascular disease and all-cause mortality? This study was a systematic review and meta-analysis on the relationship between step count and health outcomes. Exactly what we need. Luckily, with modern technology, it's pretty easy to get step counts, I guess, since they had data from more than 110,000 patients over 12 studies. What they found was that the minimum step count that you need each day to reduce your odds of all-cause mortality was at least 2,500 steps per day. To specifically lower your cardiovascular disease risk, you needed just 200 more steps, so 2,700 steps per day. That's to just start getting benefits, though. We can do better than that. The maximum reduction in all-cause mortality was seen at more like 8,700 steps, and for cardiovascular disease, more like 7,100 steps. And I bet you can keep stepping beyond this. I bet it's still good for you, but this data didn't seem to show that it was going to save your life or your heart. And on top of that, not all walking was equivalent. Walking faster was better. If you had an intermediate cadence of 62 steps per minute or a high cadence of 88 steps per minute, then your all-cause mortality risk was lower, significantly lower, as much as 20%. The hazard ratios for walking more were also significant, like 0.5, which is huge. All of this was true for both men and women. So now you know what to tell your patients, and that's amazing. Now you can recommend how many steps they should be getting each day, and you know how many steps that you yourself should also be getting. Of course, this data could be confounded by a number of things, and if you're sicker, you're probably going to walk less and then you're going to die earlier, but all the same, you know, general trends. In a spoonful, to start lowering your risk of all-cause mortality and cardiovascular disease, then you should start walking at least 2,500 steps per day. For maximum benefit, you should shoot for above 8,000 steps per day. And then we skip to the fifth and final article titled Intranasal Fentanyl and Discharge from the Emergency Department Among Children with Sickle Cell Disease and Vasoocclusive Pain, a multi-center pediatric emergency medicine perspective out of the American Journal of Hematology. Now, the care for sickle cell disease patients is typically, well, it's not as good as it could be, which is often why hematologists take such an interest in the ED care of our patients, especially in pediatrics, since they don't always trust us to do the job as well as it could be done. So, 
When we come across strategies that could enhance our care of these patients, we should probably listen up. This was a retrospective study from 20 academic emergency departments in the U.S. and Canada. Patients were aged 3 to 21 years old who were being treated for sickle cell pain with or without a fever at presentation. Those diagnosed with acute chest syndrome were excluded, and they ended up with 400 cases overall. The primary outcome was discharge home from the emergency department. What they found was that children who received intranasal fentanyl had the same average amount of total opioid equivalents given during their stays. But those who got this intranasal fentanyl were more likely to receive the first dose of the parental opioids within 30 minutes and even within 60 minutes than otherwise. Now, the shocking number from all of this is that the children who received intranasal fentanyl were nine times more likely to be discharged home than otherwise. The children were also threefold more likely if they received oral opioids than otherwise. That's just more an interesting tidbit and not the focus of the study. This ninefold increase in discharges home was even with controlling for a bunch of relevant confounders, including time to opioid administration. Now, if you restricted the analysis to just sites that use intranasal fentanyl, then the children who received it at this location, they were 40 times, that's 4,000% more likely to be discharged home. So if your site gives intranasal fentanyl to these children and you're not doing it, you're not doing these kids a favor. And if your site doesn't give intranasal fentanyl to these kids, why not? Get on the bandwagon. Anyways, all this to say that intranasal fentanyl is a great bridge to parental opioids. But don't forget that it doesn't replace them. It's just convenient and fast-acting. In a spoonful, I think I'm going to be a little bit more liberal with my intranasal fentanyl from here on out. It's something that we give at our local pediatric hospital, but I had no idea it could make this big a difference. Though I bet there's still some confounding here despite the multi-regression analysis. Perhaps people who are just more eager to treat, those are the ones that give intranasal fentanyl, just treat pain better overall. Hard to say. Okay, that's all our articles. Let's do a quick wrap-up. What did we learn today? From the second article, if you want to live longer, you should be taking more than 8,000 steps per day. And then from the fifth and final article, intranasal fentanyl had some serious benefits when it came to sending children home who presented with sickle cell pain crises. Okay, again, if you're hearing this right now, then you are not a part of the members feed. And so you missed three articles from this past week. What did those articles contain? Well, we looked at the heart score and how it has too many letters. We tried taking some out. And then we looked at an RCT on Reboa. You won't want to miss the results of that. And then finally, more on ChatGPT trying to be a doctor. Links to all the articles summarized can be found at journalfeed.org, where the newsletter is the best way to make the podcast into a bite-sized nugget of space repetition. Our goal here is for you to read less, learn more, and save lives, one spoonful at a time. Thank you.